0: It's the Adam Ragusea podcast, episode 72, and God help me, I've been scrolling short form vertical social videos again. This is always a dangerous thing to do when the algorithms know you and they know that you're into health and nutrition. This is dangerous because there's so many people out there making very popular nutritional health content. That is totally divorced from empirical reality, though such people do not disturb me nearly as much as those content creators who know just enough real science to sound vaguely credible. And perhaps they know enough real science to believe themselves to be vaguely credible, but they still have no idea what they're talking about, because nutrition science is legit complicated, and it's totally fine to not know things. It's totally fine to be a creator of informational content and still not know things. I don't know most things. The problem lies in what people like me falsely presume to know. Anyway, I was scrolling dead-eyed in the night again, and I came across a content creator with an enormous following who was just doing that thing that they do where they just walk down the aisle in a grocery store and they read ingredient labels and try to scare everybody about these big, scary-sounding ingredient names. This content creator picked up a tub of something in her video. She read that this grocery product contains hydrogenated soybean oil, and she turned to her phone camera and she said, that's illegal! They can't put that in there! How is this on the shelf? It's illegal! And I was, of course, jolted awake, because while I do not know most things, one thing I do know is that fully hydrogenated oil is a meaningfully different product compared to partially hydrogenated oil. And it is partially hydrogenated oil that has been rightfully, effectively, banned in recent years in most developed countries. Partial hydrogenation of oil results in trans fats, and a pretty tall mountain of research indicates that artificial trans fat is probably the worst widely available fat you can eat. Formerly widely available fat. These days, you have to go to the dark web or whatever to find original recipe margarine filled with artificial trans fats. The jury is still kind of out on naturally occurring trans fats, which exist in much smaller proportion in dairy fat, for example, And the jury is still out on all of the new replacements the food industry has come up with for the partially hydrogenated oils that they used to rely on so heavily and have recently been banned. For example, the food industry now uses fully hydrogenated oil, which is still legal. Fully hydrogenated oils are saturated, and there's a mountain of research indicating that fully hydrogenated oil is as bad for you as any other saturated fat. And saturated fat is still probably particularly bad for you in large amounts, the research still indicates, despite the recent internet-driven rehabilitation of saturated fats by dudes who get clicks from other dudes by bragging about all the red meat they eat, because meat is the product of violence, and violence is a defining feature of manhood, as traditionally construed. I say that as a straight cis man who loves to eat beef and abhors violence anyway fully hydrogenated oil is a saturated fat and saturated fats present their own health risks which the research indicates might be almost as bad as trans fats in many ways but artificial trans fats are still clearly the worst and they've been proven to be industrially unnecessary so it's good that they are gone But if history unfolds as it has, you know, historically, well, then it's probably going to turn out that at least some of the trans fat replacements we're eating now are actually just as bad for us as the trans fats they were replacing and perhaps even worse. Maybe the fully hydrogenated oils are fine, but when combined with other oils to make them softer, you get unanticipated health consequences. I don't know. I just know that's exactly how we ended up with the late 20th century explosion in the use of partially hydrogenated oils. Some bad science, some of it corrupted by the sugar industry, among other corrupting forces. Some bad science in the mid to late 20th century indicated that partially hydrogenated oil would be much healthier than naturally saturated fats like butter and beef tallow. The Center for Science in the Public Interest and other generally well-informed, well-intentioned expert organizations went after McDonald's for frying their fries in rendered beef fat, which I remember when I was a kid was this kind of dirty secret akin to an urban legend. Like, dude, did you know if you eat Pop Rocks with soda, you'll die? Not true. Dude, did you know McDonald's makes their fries in beef grease? True. True. Or well, it was true back then, and it's, it's not something that we would whisper about today, right? Today, fancy restaurants shout from the rooftops that they make their fries in tallow or duck fat or whatever. But when I was a kid in the 1980s and 90s, everybody was convinced that saturated fat, which we used to chiefly get from animals, was giving us all heart attacks, and any other kind of fat would be better. So partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, which can be used to imitate butter and other animal fats. Problem is, partially hydrogenated vegetable oils contain huge amounts of trans fat, and they contain trans fats in particularly dangerous isoforms compared to naturally occurring trans fats. And That's why partially hydrogenated oils are effectively illegal now in foods. I can't promise that fully hydrogenated oils are gonna be considered legal and relatively safe forever, but they are in basically good standing for the moment. It's not weird or illegal when you see a product that lists hydrogenated oil in the ingredients. Partially hydrogenated is really bad. Fully hydrogenated is less bad. Why? Because of the trans fats. Partially hydrogenated has lots of trans fats. Fully hydrogenated does not. Trans fatty acids are unsaturated fatty acids that have at least one unconjugated double bond in the trans configuration. Hand on my heart, if you stick with me, you're going to understand what that actually means. And as a bonus, you will learn about the scientific nomenclatural origins of the prefixes trans and cis, which have, of course, rocketed into the general discourse in recent years. And you'll learn why partially hydrogenated oils have lots of trans fats while fully hydrogenated oils have lots of cis fats and why cis fat is generally better for you than trans fat. Please think twice before making dumb internet jokes about how Adam Ragusea said cis is better than trans, hardy har har. In the particular case of unsaturated fatty acids, yes, cis really is generally better than trans, but this is why context matters. Anyway, the Latin preposition cis means on the side of. The corresponding preposition trans Means on the other side, and in that sense, trans is a much more familiar word to us because it is preserved in so many Roman place names. Transylvania, Sylvania means forest. Transylvania is an area that the Romans thought of as being on the other side of the forest. Transylvania literally means on the other side of the forest. Transjordan is a historic name for most of what is now the modern state of Jordan in West Asia. On all the old British colonial maps, for example, you will see this area labeled as Transjordan. Indeed, Transjordan is a name that embodies an inherently Western perspective. Because Transjordan literally means on the other side of the Jordan River. But which side is the other side? Well, the east side, of course. Because this name was coined by people on the western side of the Jordan River, i.e. the Romans. Did they call the west bank of the Jordan Cisjordan? Holy crap, they actually did. Cisjordan literally means on this side of the Jordan, and it implicitly means on our side of the Jordan, on the side of the speaker. And the Brits used to refer to all of the land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean as Cisjordan, all of modern Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, the one-time British mandate of Palestine. They seem to use the term Cisjordan to refer to this land geographically, and they use the term Palestine to refer to this land politically. Same way you would refer to like the nation of Turkey as being mostly on the geographic landform that people call Anatolia. Anatolia is the land, Turkey is the country mostly on that land. Side note about Turkey. Turkish fans of the Ragusia pod, I really need your help. I do. I understand that your country is attempting to rebrand itself. The Turkish government has made it plainly clear to the international community that they would like all of us to stop using the English name for Turkey, which is Turkey. And instead the Turks would like us to use the Turkish name for Turkey, which makes total sense to me. I support that in theory. People get to decide what they themselves are called, within reason. And I'm all about defaulting in the direction of primary sources. I'm a journalist. I also understand why Turkey would rather not be known as Turkey on the current global stage, which is set by the Brits, this global stage, via their empire that made English the international language, The words and names and such will always at least imply some kind of perspective, some point of view on the part of the speaker, and the English name for Turkey is no exception. You couldn't tell because this is a podcast, but I did not capitalize the T in Turkey just then. Some English-speaking people encountered the edible bird that we know as a turkey in their earliest expeditions to the Americas, some 500 years ago. But most English-speaking people in and around Europe first encountered this bird as it was sold to them across the extensive trading networks then controlled by the Turks. The Turks controlled the entire interface between Europe, Africa, and Asia, and thus, English-speaking people started referring to any exotic good from far away as being Turkish, or Turkey, which would have originally been a shortening of Turkia, meaning the land of the Turks in Latin grammar. Turkey got shortened to turkey in English. And then people in England started referring to these giant, exotic, new edible birds on the market as being turkey cocks or turkey hens. And eventually they shortened that to just turkey. Then the British Empire happened. So now the international name for the country of the Turks is spelled and pronounced exactly the same as the international name for a big, goofy, fully American meat bird. That's not great from the Turkish perspective, though I would argue the name is a legacy of a very proud time in Turkish history when the Turks were so known for their prowess as globe-trotting traders that all exotic luxuries were thought of as being Turkish, even when they were Mexican, as in the case of the bird that we call Turkey. It is a truly ridiculous bird, especially the uh, modern broad-breasted white turkey, a genetic abomination that is basically saying directly to camera, kill me, I should not be. So I get that Turkey the country does not want to be called Turkey anymore. I get that. They want to be called what the Turks call Turkey, which is... I really have no idea. The Turkish government did a whole PR blitz where they put out videos and press releases and all kinds of things announcing this rebranding of their country in English, but they were totally inconsistent in what they said about how the real name of Turkey should be pronounced, right? They put out a video where the narrator said Turkey yay, but the phonetic spelling given in the press release said Turkey. Yeah. Which is a totally different vowel. And it's spelled more like Turkey which is very difficult to say. And, of course, the, the U sound earlier on is more like an or sound. It's more like torkey, But that just sounds silly out of the mouth of someone like me. I have to anglicize the name somewhat so as to not sound ridiculous, right? Even though I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, I still pronounce it Knoxville. Whereas most people who were born here generally say it more like Knoxville, all of us adapt the pronunciation of names to our own genuine voice. When we don't, we usually sound clueless or we sound like we're trying way too hard. It's fine, Turks, if you want to rebrand your country, but please agree on what standard English equivalent pronunciation you would like us all to use. Opinion seems to be coalescing around turkey So I'm going to try to switch to saying turkey in normal conversation, so... Speak now or forever hold your peace, Turks. If you don't want to be turkey a, with the emphasis on the last syllable and everything, tell me now. Also, please, tell me if this is a thing that normal Turkish people actually want, and not just some ultra-nationalist, revanchist identity politics that Erdogan, the Turkish Trump, is stoking purely to excite his domestic base. Is this like when the U.S. Congress renamed French fries Freedom Fries, which wasn't a real thing? Or is this a real thing? Do actual Turkish people want people like me to actually call their country turkey I'll do it, but you got to communicate with me and you got to be consistent in your pronouncers. Side note to a side note. If you're managing a startup company with one of these like cutesy Silicon Valley names with no vowels in it or whatever... And if you want your name to be spoken aloud and discussed by members of the buying public, well then tell us how to pronounce the name of your damn company or product. There should be some phonetic representation of your name at the top of the about page on your website, and or you should just say the name of your company in the videos that you post to your corporate social feeds. But that would, of course, require you creating some original audio for your vid and not just using the tiktok jam du jour used to be that when i didn't know how to say the name of a company i would just call their corporate landline and listen to how their outgoing voicemail message pronounced the name but now companies don't have phone lines or answering services or anything anymore so for god's sake just tell people how to say the name of your thing if you want them to be talking about your thing i don't really want any more people to be talking about adam Ragusia. i'm already a little more famous than i really want to be So I'm not plastering the internet with phonetic renderings of my difficult last name, but I have done so in the past, when I wanted people to be talking about me. You know what startup has an easy to pronounce name? Masterworks, sponsor of this episode. Masterworks didn't need to take all the vowels out of their name to show that they're an innovative company. They are just manifestly innovative. And they allow normal investors like you and me to invest in the fine art market. I've invested with Masterworks myself. I've got all my normal retirement and college account bases covered, and I've been looking for alternative investments to diversify my portfolio. Plus, I like beautiful things, so I have purchased some shares in the painting Dauphin by Bridget Riley. I just created an account at masterworks.art/ragusia. I decided how much money I wanted to throw in, and there we are. If and when Masterworks eventually sells the painting, I will get my share of the profit. It's just that simple. Fine art is a market that you can access in minutes now without needing millions of dollars. Masterworks has been supporting the Ragusa pod for about a year now. And during that time, they've delivered incredible results. And the last year alone, they've had seven of their 16 exits, netting an annualized returns of 10%, 17%, and even 35%, to name a few, all this year. Masterworks even had another double-digit sale just two weeks ago. And with over 800,000 users, including me, Masterworks offerings have sold out in minutes. All the shares are just gone in that instance, but you can get priority access at my link in the description, which is masterworks.art slash Past performance is not indicative of returns for artworks not yet sold. Check out Masterworks and decide if it's a good way to diversify your portfolio go to masterworks.art ragusia Thank you, Masterworks. Anyway, we were talking about trans fats and cis fats, which are also a thing, believe it or not. Cis means on the same side, trans means on the other side, which is why the Brits referred to the area west of the Jordan River as cis Jordan, on the same side of the river as the Brits and they referred to the area east of the Jordan as Transjordan because it's on the other side of the river from the British perspective. Do fats have rivers that one can be on the same side of or on the other side of? Well, kinda, yeah. Fatty acids all contain, by definition, an aliphatic chain, which is a long line of carbon atoms, each with some hydrogen atoms hanging off of it. The carbon chain is the river in this etymological analogy. The carbon chain is the long line on which something can be either on your side, cis, or it can be on the other side, trans. All carbon atoms have four available bonding sites. Two of those bonds are occupied with other carbons in the chain. Each carbon is holding hands with the two carbons on either side of it. Or let's say that they're holding feet, just to make this image a little bit easier. The carbon atoms in the fatty acid chain are all holding feet with their neighbors, stepping on each other's feet to stay together. But that's only two of the four bonding sites each of the carbon has. Each carbon dude in the chain not only has two feet, but two hands. Grabby, Chemically reactive hands that are just reaching out for anything to bond onto, and in fats, the carbon is grabbing onto hydrogen. So again, imagine the carbon is a dude who's spread out so that he can stand on his on the feet of his neighbors in the line, and then they're all doing the same exact thing in the line. When in their arms, each of these dudes is holding onto hydrogen atoms, two each, one in each hand. So the feet are in the line of carbon, the hands are holding onto two hydrogen atoms. Each dude has right. What I have just described is a saturated fatty acid. Saturated fatty acids cannot be trans. Only unsaturated fatty acids can be trans. Our fatty acid would be monosaturated if just two of the carbon guys in this chain each let go of one of their hydrogen atoms and let it float away like a balloon. And then they used their now available hands to grab on tight to each other. These two neighbors were previously holding feet. Now they're holding feet and hands on one side, right? The chain now has one carbon-to-carbon double bond, where two of the carbons are linked via two bonding sites, respectively, not just one. If there were more than one carbon-to-carbon double bond in the chain, then it would be a polyunsaturated fatty acid. So now imagine our two carbon guys sharing this double bond. They're holding hands and feet with each other, each of them has still one available hand holding onto a single hydrogen atom, like a balloon. It matters in which direction they are holding their little hydrogen balloons. Say I'm standing in the carbon chain, this you know river of carbon, and I'm holding my hydrogen atom out to the west side of this river of carbon. If my buddy in the chain, who I'm holding hands and feet with, is also holding his hydrogen out to the west side of this river of carbon, then we're both holding our hydrogens out on the same side relative to the line. Then we've got ourselves there a cis configuration. Our hydrogens are both on the same side relative to each other. That's a cis fat. And one of its many properties is that it is bent, When you have a cis configuration of hydrogen atoms around the carbon-carbon double bond in this unsaturated fatty acid chain that you've got going on, that creates in effect an imbalance of forces across the length of this whole chain. The hydrogen atoms are both on the same side of that double bond. They repel each other slightly, so this creates an imbalance. And therefore the chain bends along that double bond that cis configuration becomes a kink in the line. The fatty acid chain literally bends in space around this spot where the forces are unbalanced. Furthermore, that carbon to carbon double bond is structurally rigid. Like if you and I were holding hands, we would still be very flexible very flexible superstructure of humans. If my one hand held onto your one hand, we could still dance around each other and bend and twist in a million different directions. Once we try to hold both hands and feet, then we're stuck. We become very rigid relative to each other, and that's basically what happens with these carbon-carbon double bonds. A saturated fatty acid chain, in contrast, is floppy and flexible. An unsaturated chain has at least one double bond, and the double bond is a rigid spot in the chain. When you have hydrogen around that double bond in a cis configuration, you know, both hydrogens on the same side of the chain, that creates a bend in the chain, and that bend is rigid because it has a carbon double bond. These are kinks in the line that cannot be simply straightened out by pulling hard or whatever. Cis fats are, necessarily, kinky fats. And when fatty acids are each filled with these random rigid kinks or bends in their structure, they are less able to line up in neat little rows and to crystallize. Thus, cis fats tend to be liquid at room temperature it's like trying to get a whole bunch of bendy straws to lay flat in a package versus trying to do the same with a bunch of straight straws. Cis fats are the bendy straws. They do not line up with each other easily, so they tend to remain liquid. Olive oil is a mostly cis fat. It's like 75% oleic acid, which is a cis monounsaturated fat. One double bond in each chain Both hydrogen atoms are on the same side as each other, which creates a kink at that point of the double bond in the chain, and thus the chains cannot line up as easily, and thus they are less likely to form a solid with each other. Cis means on the same side. Trans means on the opposite side. A trans fat is definitionally some type of unsaturated fat, right? Because there's no double bonds in a saturated fat. A trans fat is unsaturated, so it has at least one double bond. And on this double bond, the two carbon guys who are holding their hydrogen atoms, they're holding them out on opposite sides of the chain. We're all standing in a line. I'm holding my hydrogen out to the left. Gary behind me is holding his hydrogen out to the right. Get with it, Gary. Actually, what looks like chaotic behavior on Gary's part is really super lawful because by holding his hydrogen out in the opposite direction from me in the trans position, trans meaning on the opposite side, by holding his hydrogen out on the right while I hold mine out on the left, Gary has actually created a balance of forces. His hydrogen is balancing out mine and thus the line does not bend. The line is still rigid in spots because it's an unsaturated fat and therefore it has at least one carbon to carbon double bond, which is rigid, but at least it's straight. And one of many consequences of that is that trans fats have an easier time lining up neatly and thus forming solids at room temperature. And there it is. There's one reason why you would want to convert some normal cis fats into these trans fats that are much less common in nature. Most easily accessible edible fats that occur naturally in this world are plant oils, and most plant oils are cis unsaturated, thus, they are liquid at room temperature, and that makes them less suited for all of the things that we use solid fat for, like biscuits and other high fat baked goods that we want to be solid, or for bars of soap. It's very tricky to make a solid bar of soap with a liquid fat instead of a solid one. Also, cis unsaturated fat goes bad faster because that carbon to carbon double bond isn't nearly as strong as the carbon to hydrogen bond. So if your fatty acid chain has a double bond in it, which is what makes it unsaturated, it's likely that that double bond will come loose at some point. And then you'll have an available bonding site on the carbon atoms that's very likely to link up with oxygen. And that is one kind of lipid oxidation, rancidity. Cis-unsaturated fats, like the kind we generally get in the plant world, and, and in much of the animal world for that matter, these oils are incredibly abundant and cheap, but they are liquid at room temperature, which limits their usefulness, and they spoil quickly, which ends their usefulness. All of this explains why 19th century scientists in Europe and America started playing around with hydrogenating unsaturated oils. Advances in agricultural technology had created tons and tons, literally tons of oily byproducts that no one could use or sell. Here in my part of the world, the southern U.S., it was cottonseed oil. We grew cotton for clothes. Each bowl of cotton that you harvest has dozens of oily little seeds in it. And at the very least, that creates a lot of trash you have to get rid of at the cotton mill where you shake those seeds out. The seeds are poisonous to humans to eat and not very useful as livestock feed, so they were pretty much useless. But there were so many of them created by the southern cotton industry. That is why Wallace McCaw of the Macon Manufacturing Company in Macon, Georgia, explored ways of processing cotton seeds to make them useful. And he contributed to the development of what became Crisco, short for Crystallized Cottonseed Oil. Legend has it that the yellow bricks in the jaw-dropping Macaw mansion in downtown Macon were made to look like bricks of Crisco. That's one of those stories that's just too good to scrutinize for historicity. The Procter & Gamble company here in the US developed Crisco using some knowledge that they got from Wallace McCaw, and also some knowledge that they got by licensing a German patent held by Wilhelm Norman, a German scientist who was trying to market his own useless oils, not cottonseed oil over there in Europe, but rather like whale oil and other fish oils. European marine industries had generated massive quantities of these stinky, fishy oils for generations. And people burned whale oil in lamps and some such. But by the late 19th century, there were cleaner burning fuels on the market. So one of the many things that Wilhelm Norman was thinking about at the oil factory where he worked was how to sell all of this whale oil. Hydrogenation renders unsaturated oils solid, stable, and not stinky anymore, or at least the process helps with the smell. There are other processes that you can do to fully deodorize oils, but hydrogenation itself really helps. And how did Wilhelm Norman do it? Well, he did it by flowing liquid oil over a solid nickel metal catalyst in the presence of hydrogen gas. You do that, some of the carbon-carbon double bonds break open, and gaseous hydrogen swoops in to occupy those newly freed bonding sites so that the fats do not oxidize, and there you've got hydrogenated oil. I'm sure I am grotesquely oversimplifying all of that, as I always do, as a matter of necessity, but the point is, hydrogenation can turn unsaturated oil into saturated fat. I've been using the terms interchangeably, but Under the narrow definitions, oil is liquid and fat is solid at room temperature. Here's the catch. You can hydrogenate oil too much. If you really go hard on this process, and if you convert every single carbon double bond into a single bond, and if you fully flood the zone with hydrogen, so as to fully saturate all of your oil with hydrogen, the resulting product has limited use in food because it is so hard and waxy. You can melt it down, but at room temperature, Fully hydrogenated oil is almost rock hard and a biscuit made with it would feel like a mouthful of greasy pebbles or some such. None of the fats that you encounter in nature are fully saturated because they're all mixtures of different kinds of fatty acids. Beef fat is at most 50% saturated. And think of how solid beef fat is at room temperature. Coconut oil is like 90% saturated. And if you've ever bought real a relatively unprocessed coconut oil from the store, you know how hard and waxy it is. Imagine if it was 100% saturated instead of being just 90% saturated. So the manufacturers of Crisco and similar products that are modeled after butter and lard, they only hydrogenated their oil just enough to get a semi-solid texture at room temperature. If you hydrogenate it all the way, you get wax. You hydrogenate it part of the way, you get something texturally similar to butter, and you can put flavorings in it that make it taste like butter, and there you've got margarine. This is why hydrogenated food oils were, historically, partially hydrogenated, not fully hydrogenated. The problem with partial hydrogenation that nobody understood 100 years ago is that it results in unsaturated oils with at least some trans bonds carbon double bonds where one hydrogen is on one side of the chain and it's balanced out by a corresponding hydrogen on the opposite side of the chain, the transposition, which rarely happens in nature. Depends on which specific products you study, but studies have found that up to 60%, six zero, up to 60% of the fatty acids in partially hydrogenated vegetable oils are trans fats. Slather that particular brand of margin or whatever onto your crumpet, and you are eating more trans fats in one sitting than you've probably eaten all year from naturally occurring foods. Butter and beef fat are normally a few percentage points trans fat. 10% of the fat max is going to be trans fat, and it might be much less than that. Why is there some trans fat in animal milk and meat? Well, specifically, it's the milk and meat of ruminants, animals that eat grass. Cows, sheep, goats, these animals eat grass, and then they use enormous colonies of bacteria in their many-chambered stomachs to ferment indigestible molecules into digestible ones. Normal cis-polyunsaturated fats, like the kind you get in the plant world, Normal cis polyunsaturated fats are toxic to some of these bacteria in the rumen, and thus they have evolved to where they ferment cis fats into trans fats. That's how trans fat gets into ruminant animal products. The bacteria inside the animals make the trans fat to protect themselves. Is it bad for us to eat? Well, there's a little science on this question, and the answer is naturally occurring trans fats in ruminants are probably not as bad for you as artificial trans fats and some of them might actually be good for you how is that possible trans fat is trans fat right no that's as wrong as when people try to say sugar is sugar chemistry is complicated especially the like closer you look Sometimes totally different molecules get categorized under the same name, or sometimes it is it is the same molecule, but it's a different isomer or a different arrangement of the same atoms in space. Very subtle differences at tiny scales can result in radically different biological effects. One of the most common types of trans fat that occurs naturally in beef and dairy is vaccinic acid. And there's a couple of rat studies on the books where vaccinic acid was found to actually lower bad cholesterol, or at least not make the bad cholesterol levels any worse. In contrast, the particular kinds of trans fat that you tend to get from industrial hydrogenation have been shown to definitely raise bad cholesterol in rats and in humans. That is the main way in which we know that trans fats are really, really bad for us. They raise your LDL and they lower your HDL. There are human studies where they take actual human beings and swap out like 10% of their normal calories for trans fats, and a few weeks later, there are double digit percentage differences in their LDL and HDL, generally in the wrong directions. The mechanism of action here is not entirely clear. There are a couple of studies indicating that trans fats signal the liver to make chemical precursors of low-density lipoproteins, which is the bad kind of cholesterol that blocks your arteries and gives you heart attacks and strokes. Eating the particular kinds of trans fats created by hydrogenation promotes LDL synthesis in your liver. But wait, there's more. Trans fats have been shown to promote inflammation Of course, scientifically illiterate people who get clicks by stoking fears about toxic foods just love to talk about how everything promotes inflammation. Inflammation is a conveniently vague problem. But the thing is, it's real. Fears about food causing inflammation are not necessarily bullshit. Sterile inflammation is when some part of your body swells up as though it has an infection, but there is no infection. Lots of foods that we eat and other things that we're exposed to all the time create low-level, sterile inflammation through whole parts of your body or through whole body systems, systemic inflammation. And over time, this constant low-level inflammation hurts us and shortens our lives, probably. There's lots of studies showing a rise in inflammatory markers associated with a rise in trans fat consumption. For example, there's one study where they took healthy men. They swapped out 8% of their calories with industrial trans fats for five weeks. And on average, these guys, their C-reactive protein concentration in their blood plasma tripled. C reactive protein is an inflammatory marker associated with atherosclerosis. Trans fats have also been shown to stress the endoplasmic reticulum, which is kind of like a miniature, simplified circulatory system that serves individual cells, like it's inside the cell in the cytoplasm. You know what also stresses the endoplasmic reticulum? Saturated fats. And saturated fats cannot, by definition, be trans. The balance of research and expert opinion remains that saturated fat is also bad for you compared to most unsaturated fats. It's just not quite as bad for you as industrial trans fats. Plus, it's a lot easier to remove industrial trans fats from your diet. I mean, they didn't exist until like a little over 100 years ago saturated fats in contrast have been in our diets since forever if you're a government health official you look at an ingredient that people can easily do without and it's not natural and it seems to be particularly injurious to people so yeah if you're gonna ban anything you ban that which is what they did the ban on artificial trans fats in the u.s went into full effect in 2018 and industry adapted. Now a product like Crisco is made with fully hydrogenated soybean oil, fully saturated, cannot be trans. And because it's so waxy, they soften it by mixing in some other stuff. Look at the ingredient labels. Just remember that fully hydrogenated oil is not a trans fat. It cannot be a trans fat. Trans fats are unsaturated by definition. Fully hydrogenated equals saturated. Saturated fat is also bad, but the government can't ban it. Nor could the government ban natural trans fats, even if they wanted to. Natural trans fats are produced in rumen, so they're just in the milk and in the meat of ruminants. Natural trans fats tend to be different kinds of trans fats, different isomers, all that. And what limited evidence we have suggests there is not such a strong correlation between natural trans fats and heart disease, et cetera. It's unclear whether that lack of correlation is due to these trans fats being different or if it's due to them being scarce. Because even if you got 100% of your calories from butter, you would still only get about 4% of your calories from trans fat because butter is only about 4% trans fat. A diet heavy in pre-ban processed snack cakes full of partially hydrogenated oils would probably have way more trans fat than even that hypothetical all-butter diet that no one would actually eat. If you want to read more about artificial trans fat versus natural trans fat versus saturated fat, there is a link in the description to the recent literature review that was the jumping off point for my research today. Make good choices, and I'll talk to you next time.